Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Offering sound advice for your car, home and travel insurance needs. Well now, Irish Times literary editor Martin Doyle grew up in County Down. He left for college in St Andrews and he worked in the United Kingdom as a journalist for many years. Recently he decided that it was time to write about what he knows best. And what he grew up with was not the troubles of the Falls Road or the Shankill or the streets of Derry, but a much more local rural story for a small place in County Down called Tullylish where he came from. Martin Doyle's here. Good morning to you and thanks for coming into studio. Thanks for having me, Mary. I have your book here, Dirty Linen, My Troubles in My Home Place. It's actually a really beautiful book. And you'd think it would be very sad because it obviously is a lot of memories and stories of people you grew up with. But it's also uplifting about the human spirit. Tell me first about your parish of Tullylish. Where is it and what kind of a community is it? So Tullylish lies on the banks of the River Ban um, between Banbridge and Portadown and Lurgan. Um, it's a very rural community. Um, it's a few square kilometres um, with a few thousand people, no population centre bigger than a thousand people. And yet over 30 years of the Troubles, more than 20 people died violently in, in those fields and villages. Um, it's, I suppose, distinctive feature previously was that it was the heartland of the linen industry. So between Belivi and um, Moyallan at the western edge of Tullalish, there used to be about a dozen linen mills and bleach greens employing hundreds if not thousands of people. Um, and they grew, or sorry, the, the farmers grew the flax, which they turned into, which they steeped in, the, in water to break down the, fa- the fibres and then turned it into fabric and weaving it in their own homes or later in factories along the band powered by the river ban. And then the fabric was bleached, whitened in, in the sun using vitriol. So I kind of used the, the metaphor of the, the decline of the linen industry as a kind of a parallel to the decline into communal violence of the Troubles. Like those two online um, images in the online versions of articles that I wrote about, which led to my book Dirty Linen. Mm. The first one um, was the image of Guildford Mill, which is now derelict. This is a six-storey building covered in ivy, the window's gone. Um, and so that's gone. But also the second piece that I wrote was about the O'Dowd's family. Um, Barney O'Dowd was my milkman. Declan O'Dowd was our coal man. And their family farmhouse in a very remote part of the parish in Ballydugan. Um, it's abandoned too. It was abandoned 45 years ago because in early January uh, 1976, um, loyalist gunmen burst into a family kind of gathering and they shot dead, or they shot dead two of my milkman Barney's sons, Declan and Barry, um, and also Barney's brother, Joe. Um, and Barney himself was seriously injured. And after this, the family moved south and I never saw them again. When I wrote the first piece um, that was published in the Irish Times, uh, Noel, um, Barney's son, got in touch and said that Barney was 98 years old. He was still alive. Would I like to meet him? And so that was a deeply moving experience to kind of to be reunited with a figure from your childhood. Like Barney had stood on my doorstep in Miller Park in Lawrencetown every day of my life. And at the weekends, you'd be collecting the money and he'd let you put your hand into his satchel full of coins, which like was like a pot of gold or a treasure <laughs> chest for a child. So when I you know, heard that he had been shot and his, his sons had been killed and his brother had been killed, that was like a very traumatic 
aspect of my childhood or whatever. And there's an aspect of healing to to writing this book because it's it's kind of making it's an exercise in me kind of facing up to some of the you know the traumatic memories I guess or just the you know the low level fear that I think everybody in the in the north lived with during the troubles that this could happen to anyone. Like for example. When um, I was eight years old, um, my mum told me that um, a neighbour who lived a few few doors down um, had died. Um, she was an elderly woman, um, her name was Sissy Anderson, and she was the type of neighbour that if the ball went to her garden, you didn't get it back. So that might explain my reaction, which was, <laughs> who shot her? You know, so, but I think that kind of shows just how, how accustomed we had become to violent death, that an elderly neighbour dies and your first instinct is that she has been assassinated. Absolutely. Um, you also, I think you don't mind me saying that one of the reasons I think you felt you could really write it and relate to people who'd lost people is because I suppose you, your own wife, Nikki, died 10 years of cancer, didn't she? Very young. Yes. So uh, Nikki was 48 when she died. She died 10 years ago uh, next week. And so I guess that made me think long and hard about um about how you sort of preserve the memory of a loved one and just what it means to to be bereaved. Like, you know, it's, you know, when something, when a loved one, when you lose a loved one, that sort of, it's kind of a defining moment in your life. It divides mm-hmm. your life into a before and an after. So obviously the grief of violent death is much more complicated, but at the same time, it did give me an understanding with which I could approach and a, and a and sensibility with which I could approach, for example, Eamon Kearns to talk to him about the murder of his two sons, um, which happened 30 years ago last weekend, or to uh, Donna Campbell to talk about her father, um, who was murdered 50 years ago last weekend. So I could approach them, you know, with, you know, probably maybe a greater degree of understanding Mm -hmm. or sympathy or respect, having, you know, having had my own experience. Because it's very moving. And I think, as you say, you know, to be forgotten is to die a second time almost. So you have almost given, I don't know, a memory and a huge respect to a lot of these people who not have been written out of history, but they've been forgotten. And their families went on to decades and continue decades of grief, don't they? That's very true. Um, like I, I, I use the example of um, another atrocity which happened in my parish four days before the O'Dowds were killed. And I, it also serves the point that the three victims there were Protestant civilians who were just having a drink in the local pub in Guildford on New Year's Eve, 1975. It's very important for me that this isn't the story just of my Catholic friends and neighbours. Um, it's the story of the entire parish, Catholic mm-hmm. and Protestant, civilian, RUC, territorial army soldier. You know, I make no distinction. You know, grief mm-hmm. is grief, loss is loss. So um, on New Year's Eve, um, three people were killed in a pub explosion, uh, a no warning INLA bomb in a pub in Guildford. And yet if you Google Guildford, that's spelled G-I-L-F-O-R-D, pub bombing, what comes up? The only thing that comes up is the Guildford pub bombing in Surrey, England. So three people lost their lives in this um, pub in, in my nearby village. And they are erased from history by the Google algorithm. And I think, you know, the weight of that tragedy for for my neighbours, and yet there is nothing in the historical record. They, you know, they're erased a second time. So I think it's really important, like Richard Beatty, whose father was murdered in that bombing. He'd never spoken to anybody about um, what he went through, um, not even his siblings. And so, you know, I think, I hope it is a, a healing process 
perhaps to, you know, to to share publicly um, what he went through, what his family went through, and I think, like the the troubles was a collective uh, suffering, and I think it should be remembered collectively, not just by those immediately bereaved. I think they deserve um, our understanding and our attention. Why do you think it is, Martin? I mean, you even write, you know, a veil of signs has been drawn over the horrors of the past. Is it that people who suffered so much, there was such trauma, they don't want to remember it, they don't want to talk about it? Or is it that people just move on and we end up not giving due regard to these terrible stories? I think the the people who suffered... Um, they live with that every day of their lives. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, you can't move on from something like that. You, you can learn to live with it. Um, but it's, I think it's maybe wider society um, that is maybe more tempted to kind of move on and, and put it all behind them. But, and if you look at what the British government recently did with its legacy bill, mm-hmm. um, I think that is an attempt to to silence the past. Like so many of these people, they've never had inquests, proper inquests into how their, their loved ones died. There's the cloud of collusion hangs over a lot of this. And yet, bizarrely, the recently appointed interim chief constable of Northern Ar- of the PSNI, and uh, John Boucher, he has spent the last five years of his life mm-hmm. investigating both stake knives and the IRA informer and also the Glenan gang, which is the loyalist paramilitaries who crop up again and again in, in my book. It's it's almost like I was sort of following in his footsteps because he had been interviewing many of the families that I had been speaking to. And now we're at a kind of a crux because, you know, I've spoken to several of the of the um, victims' families that I've interviewed for my book, and they want to know what does his appointment mean in terms of, you know, is this report going to come out? Is it going to be censored like so many other reports have mm-hmm. been previously, like the Sampson, the Stevens, the Stalker inquiries? Or will this at long last be an opportunity to kind of um, sunlight is the best disinfectant to shine a true light on on some of the things that are, that happened in the past. Because as you say, like you, your book covers stories from both sides of the community, but remind listeners about that guy, Robin Jackson, the jackal. I mean, he was part of that notorious Danan gang, wasn't he? I mean, it's astonishing. He was one of the leaders it. of it. Like, you know, the um, his first victim was Pat Campbell. I mentioned yeah. Donna, it's actually Donna Barry now. She's married to a guy that was at my, pri- I was in class with a primary school. But um, Donna was, I think, 10 years old when she witnessed her father's murder. Um, her father, Pat, was the shop steward at the biggest local employer, Down Shoes, the shoe factory. Um, Jackson had actually worked there previously. He'd been sacked for fighting uh, with another man. Um, and he was also a serving member of the Ulster Defence Regiment. And he should have been in custody um, the night that he murdered Pat Campbell because he had been named by a man arrested with an arms hole as the person who had made him store the weapons. This is a serving member of the UDR who'd been named um, linked to a serious crime and yet he was free to uh, shoot dead Pat Campbell whose widow, Margaret, identified him. She opened the door to him. She identified him in ID parade. And yet still um, that wasn't considered strong enough evidence um, for him to be convicted. And he went on to kill... Um, he was linked to the Kearns brothers' killings um, 20 years later. He was linked to the Dublin Monaghan bombings. He was the chief suspect in the O'Dowd murders. 
you know, he was a serial killer, rather like Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. And I make the point that just the way that um, Peter Sutcliffe got away with his crimes for so long because the police investigating mm. his crimes regarded his victims as lesser because they were sex workers in the main. Whereas in this case, why was Robin Jackson's victims treated as lesser because they were Catholic? Mm. The people you've spoken to, I mean, they seem very happy to speak to you within this. Do you think they were in a sense, relieved that someone was showing interest in what had happened to their loved ones? Or did some people just not want to remember the past? The, like, I think of all the the people in the book, the, there's only two chapters, if you like, two instances where um, families chose not to. The first people murdered in my parish were three members of the British Army in, an aban- in a house that had belonged to a man who had been interned and had been since abandoned and had been used by local children as a playhouse. They got in through the roof after a storm blew tiles off it. Um, so they could easily have been the victims, but the, his house was booby-trapped and three soldiers were killed. I managed to track down um, uh, the family of one of those soldiers and was communicating with them through an intermediary, uh, the head of the local British Legion. In the end, they chose not to mm. take part, which I can completely understand. I wasn't you know, haunting yeah. anybody to kind of take part. I was inviting them and if they didn't, I moved on. That wasn't an issue. And there was another family, the first um, Catholic victim in, oh, sorry, the first victim in in my part, who was from my parish was Joe Fagan. Uh, he was a lorry driver. He was one of eight people who were killed in a IRA bomb at Newry Customs Post um, in 1972. Um, his daughter, Mary, was in um, my class at primary school. Like I started primary school two weeks later after that explosion. Um, and his brother Kieran, or sorry, his son Kieran, was the year above me in my sister Andrea's class. So this is this is close to home. That family, you know, felt it was too painful to to talk about. So, but instead, there was another lorry driver who was killed in that explosion. Um, so I spoke to his daughter, and so I guess telling the story of what happened, perhaps at one remove, but still a way of telling the story. Now that you've written it, and actually Fergal Keane from the BBC said it's the finest memoir of the conflict I've ever read. And actually I've read a lot about <clears throat> the Northern Troubles and I found it incredibly powerful too. <clears throat> Did you come away feeling very strongly about violence? Yes, I guess, you know, my my opinion didn't change. Like, you know, mm. I believe, you know, the, the trouble shouldn't have happened. Mm. I think it was understandable. Like, you know, um, people were being attacked um, you know, during the civil rights movement, they were beaten off the streets mm. and the RUC failed to protect them and so <clears> forth. And there was communal violence where Catholic areas of, of Belfast were being attacked by loyalist mobs with um, the security forces at best standing on. Mm. You know, it was inevitable there was going to be some self-defence or whatever, mm. but there's a big distinction between that and setting off no warning car bombs. Um uh, which happened again and again. Like there's an there's an incident in the book about where Jennifer McNairn I interviewed and she suffered. She she was maimed in the Abercorn bombing, um, and she thought, well, at least after this, nobody else. She had lost both her legs. Her sister mm. Rosaline bo- lost two legs, an arm, and an eye. Rosaline said to me, at least you know, when she was being le- let out of hospital, thought at least you know they won't do that again. The day that she was let out of hospital to go home was Bloody Friday when there were so many bombs uh, let off that people were fleeing one and c- getting caught in the path of another. 
Well, it's it's a really powerful book, beautifully written, Martin. It's Dirty Linen by Martin Doyle, published by Marion Press. It's a really personal, really well-written account. Thank you so much for coming in this morning. And you're going to be speaking next Sunday, November the 12th, with uh, Joe Duffy from this parish as part of the Dublin Book Festival at the Printworks. So thanks so much for coming in. Sorry you lost your wife. And thank you very, very much for being here today.